All right, the reading is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thanks, Mark. Now, <clears throat> what's interesting, again, I'm just going to remind you every week of this. What's interesting about verses uh, 3 through 14 in chapter 1 is that in the Greek, it's all one sentence. Paul just gets started on this. Um, in, in the Hebrew, because Paul was Jewish and he, was, he had the Old Testament memorized, the Hebrew Bible memorized, uh, in the Hebrew, this is known as a barakah. It's a, um, it's a uh, formulation of of praise, blessing, and celebration. He's celebrating what God has done for us. And, and he's just rolling here. One sentence. We have split it in the ESV anyway, the English Standard Version, into five different uh, English sentences. And, and we're taking you know, five or six weeks to go through it. And that's why right now we're having 3 through 14 read every Sunday until we're done with uh, verses 13 and 14 in a, f in a few weeks. So tonight we look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. That's a, that's a beautiful three-point outline, isn't it? Isn't that nice of Paul to do that for the 21st century preacher? Um, and what's interesting is right after the riches of, the, of his grace, which is in verse 8, it says, which he has lavished upon us. I can't wait till next week and we can talk about that word lavished and what it means to have that grace lavished on us. But there are three, these, these are three of these multiple blessings that Paul talks about in these, three, these um, 12 verses. Paul says we should bless God and bless others because we have been so richly blessed by God in and through Jesus Christ. And then he reels off, depending on how you count, and I count 23, between 15 and 23 ways that God has blessed us in Jesus Christ. These are three of the ways that he's blessed us in this one verse tonight. So he's blessed us with redemption. And right away, um, I, I want to ask questions that maybe some of you would ask. Redemption? Oh, yeah? Well, why? From what? What is redemption and why would I need redemption? What do I need to be redeemed out of or from? Uh, and, then, and then there's forgiveness. Forgiveness of what? What do, what do I need forgiveness for the average person walking around doesn't really have a framework 
where they understand they need to be redeemed from something and they need forgiveness. And so those are legitimate questions. And, and it's all because of the riches of his grace. And that is a blessing too, the riches of his grace that he's lavished upon him. So we're going to work our way through these. Uh, redemption, number one. Now def- defined in their context, this word, this Greek word that we translate as redemption, literally means delivery from bondage. It's the assumption that you're in bondage to something. You're chained up, if, if that imagery helps you. You're chained up. And you've been released from that somehow. You've been delivered from that bondage. And in their first century Mediterranean culture, all around the Mediterranean there, it was a common marketplace term. They used this word redemption a lot because it meant that a person was released from their obligation of being a slave in their economy. Now, now, we have a history and an understanding of slavery in America. And I understand that, and we fought a civil war over it. That's not the same kind of slavery that we're talking about that was integral to their first century economy. There were essentially two classes of people around the Mediterranean at this time. There were what were called free men, free men, free men and women who were not in bondage, for any reason, and then there were slaves. They, they were indentured servants. They had sold themselves into slavery in order to either take care of their family or pay off their, their debts, whatever it was, but they were actually owned, and, and the other person had a right to them as a slave, a servant, or here you go, as an employee, okay? Um, many of these slaves were well taken care of, and, and, and were loved by their owners, many were not. I mean, that's just kind of the human condition. But it was often the goal of a slave to find redemption, to be released from the bondage. They didn't necessarily want to go into slavery in the first place. They sort of had to because of the circumstances of their life, and now they'd like to be redeemed from that bondage. And the way you could be redeemed, one of the ways you could be redeemed is as you earned a little bit of money as a slave, you could actually save up your money and you could buy your freedom from your owner. That was one way to do it. You could also have somebody else from the outside come in and pay that redemption price to your owner and have you released. Maybe that sounds a little bit like Jesus on the cross, okay? He paid for our sins on the cross, and we received the benefit of that, okay? Uh, the other way it could happen is you could just have an owner who one day says, you know what, I'm just going to give you your redemption. I'm going to release you. That's called grace. That's called, it just out of my graceful heart, I'm going to release you. The other thing about this idea of redemption, though, that we have to make sure we understand is that this is the Apostle Paul writing here. And I'm going to say this a lot during Ephesians. The more I read and study Paul and the more I read and study the Old Testament, which many of you know I love the Old Testament, the more I see in Paul's New Testament writing allusions to the Old Testament in the back of his mind. And several of the scholars saw it here as well. There was also the Exodus redemption story in the Old Testament when Paul's people, the Jews the family of Jacob, 
were in Egypt and they were enslaved in Egypt. Things were fine when Joseph, one of Jacob's son, sons, was in charge. But 400 years later, the Egyptians had put them into slavery, the Jews into slavery. And so that becomes the platform for the Exodus story where they go through the Red Sea and out into the wilderness and, and all of that and eventually come into the promised land. So Paul is also thinking, here you go, Paul is also thinking about the grand narrative of God's redemptive story throughout time and scripture. So yes, there is this idea of a, of a first century slave, but in Paul's mind, he's got to also be thinking about the grand gospel narrative. The book of Ephesians, talked a little bit about this the first week. I'm going to remind us several times of this as, as well. The first three chapters are, are all doctrine, teaching. It's about the gospel. It's it, 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 even in some places, you might say it's a bit technical, and, and it's just teaching about what God ha, in Christ has done for us. Uh, one author calls it, the, chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians, that's the gospel story, and then chapters 4 through 6 uh, are the application of that, because this is all true, because God in his in his love and mercy has redeemed us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This then is how, therefore, we are to live. And we are to live in a manner worthy of our calling to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the application to our lives. So one author says chapters 1 through 3 is the gospel story. Chapters 4 through 6 is our story in the midst of the gospel. That's exactly how this letter is set up. So Paul is also thinking about the Exodus redemption story as well. But then you say, so what bondage, though, specifically, because this is in Christ as a result of the riches of his grace, what bondage has Jesus delivered us from in the 21st century? It's simple. It's the bondage of sin. He's delivered us from the bondage of sin, and it's enslaving power. We're enslaved to sin. We don't like to admit it, but we are. And we're not just really, we're not just talking about the manifestation of sinful behavior, although that's part of it, but we're also talking about, and this is really important to grasp, it's also the fact that without Christ, we are in bondage to the punishment and consequences of our sin as well. So it's not just our behavior, that the behavior that we want to do, our flesh, our eyes, our, our pride uh, that drives us to sin, it's not just our behavior, but it's also we're in bondage to the consequences of this sin. In other words, we're in bondage to the judgment, the condemnation, the guilt, the sin, I, I'm sorry, the shame, and the death, the spiritual death of sin. All of that is conquered and redeemed and paid for by Jesus. That is the gospel, and that is good news. Uh, Matthew chapter 20, Jesus says this, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. You must think of that person before you think of yourself. Even as the Son of Man, even as Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When you make the payment for a first century slave, one of the things that you would call that payment is the ransom. 
So there you go. Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace, Jesus' grace, coming through the, redemp- through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. One of the songs that Cody has written has this line in it uh, at the end of the chorus. I love this song. This is one of my favorite songs. Sin and shame, guilt were slain. They took their final death, the day life put death to death. That is, that is such a beautifully, it's a great song, but it's theologically accurate, correct. And this redemption is done through the blood of Jesus, through the blood. You read scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, you cannot escape the reality that it is blood that atones for, that forgives, that redeems, that, that takes care of the sin. You can't do it any other way. As I'm getting older, uh, when I was younger, I could outwork out my bad habits. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? I could eat whatever I wanted, and I'd just run a few extra miles, spend a little extra time in the gym. I could, I could outwork my bad habits. No more. When you hit 40, it starts creeping up on you. And, and I'm at that point now where it's true. 80% of what I do has to be through food, and only 20... I, I could run 200 miles a week. I'm not going to be able to outwork my bad habits. Here you go. You cannot outwork your debt for sin. The only thing that can take care of it is blood. Blood atonement, a blood sacrifice. Leviticus chapter 17. Life and redemption is found only in blood. It's the blood that covers, atones for, and pays for us falling short before the glory of God. First uh, Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 21 says this. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in the last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. I had this conversation just this last week. I can't exactly remember where it was, but I remember having it. It's a fairly common conversation. Oh, I remember. I, I, was, I was having coffee with Ben Park. We had this conversation. Uh, we don't like to talk about this. We don't like to admit this. But we really do feel shame and guilt for our sinful behavior. And it's not just our behavior. We, we feel shame and guilt for our, our, our thought life. Right? Okay, you don't have to admit it. I know it's true of everybody. Okay. Um, and that, that shame and that guilt because of the sin uh, follows us around in a way that I would say is similar to a ball and a chain being attached to your leg with a padlock and you can't get rid of it. And then Jesus comes along and through his blood atoning sacrifice on the cross, he cuts that padlock off that ball and chain, and it gets left there on the ground. And then 
We're redeemed. But you know what a lot of us do with that ball and chain? It's been cut off. But instead of reveling in the victory of Christ, we bend down and pick up that ball and chain and we carry it with us. We're redeemed. We don't, we don't need to carry around that ball and chain anymore. That's the beauty of the gospel. Here's the second thing. We're, we're forgiven of our trespasses. First of all, what's a trespass? I went on somebody's property the other day incorrectly. Okay, well, I'm forgiven of that. No, the word trespass is just another word for sin. There are several words that, that you, in the ancient Greek can use that, that mean sin. This one is, is fairly uh, particular, though. I want to give you the definition of it. It's a transgression. It's a wrongdoing, if you prefer that word, wrongdoing. Literally, in the Greek, the root of this word means a deviation. A deviation. A deviation from what is expected. A deviation from what is good. A deviation from what is holy. A deviation from the mark that you're supposed to be hitting. You're missing the mark. It's, it's a fault. It's a flaw. You've missed it. I, I'm old enough to remember that uh, at one time, a fairly common word in our vernacular... Uh, in our English vernacular, for somebody who was kind of like a known sinner in, in town, we would call them what? A deviant. Exactly. Thank you. People are tracking. That's awesome. Yeah, we call them a deviant. You don't hear that word very much anymore. People get offended by that. But yeah, you, a deviant. It means that you've deviated from, from what, is, what is holy. And it's a kind of a negative, nasty word. What Paul is trying to get at here and, and what Scripture gets at is, is we have to be redeemed from something, and it's not good. It, it's not like we're almost there, we're almost good enough, and I just need Jesus to kind of spackle the holes and take care of you know, all the little tiny... No, we are in a world of trouble. We have deviated from the mark of God's holiness. So no matter how we try to spin this, it's not good. And we live in a culture today that wants to use euphemisms. We want to take the sting out of words. We, we never want to say what, what, what's really going on. It, it, seriously, I, it's been like 40, four decades, 40 years, since a politician actually admitted to lying. Now... Now, occasionally, they'll say this, I misspoke. You see how that takes the sting out of it? Sort of a nebulous, oops-a-daisy kind of a thing. Here's another one, okay? I meet with a lot of people who are addicted to substances, okay? And what they like to say to me is that they, they are experimenting with drugs. See how that takes the sting out of it? Okay, we have to understand the 90th time that you snort cocaine, it's no longer an experiment. You know what's going to happen. We're always trying to take... We need to deal with the reality of this here. And while that sin, our deviations from what is good and holy and pure, we commit those against others and we commit them against ourselves. How many times have you heard, as long as I'm not hurting somebody else, it's okay? No! You're sinning against yourself, too. You just don't realize it yet. You don't understand how unhealthy this is for you because I know it feels good. I mean, um, I don't know if it was Martin Luther or Tom Schrader, one of the two, 
I kind of count them as equal, okay? But one of the two said, listen, if you're not having fun when you sin, then you're not sinning correctly, all right? So, yeah, we sin, but, but it's not good for us, okay? So we sin against ourselves. So not only are we sinning against others and sinning against ourselves, but we're sinning against a holy God, and it offends him. And that's actually our biggest problem. We just don't realize it. We just don't feel the weight of that. Like we should. So I hope, I, I hope you see what I'm trying to get at here. We need forgiveness. We need it. It's essential. Here you go. Finish this sentence for me. It's a two-word sentence. Nobody's perfect. See, we know. We know this is true. But we'd love to gloss over it. We'd love to whitewash it. That's where Jesus gets, you know, his language for the professional religious people. He says, you guys are whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but you're filled with dead bones on the inside. That's who you really are. I'm reading a, another book. A pastor wrote it. Uh, he said that one day when he was done preaching, somebody walked up and said, Pastor, I just want you to know that I, I know you are a sinner. I, I, I've been watching you, and you're a sinner. And uh, the pastor said back to him, you know, what's really amazing about that is you're making that judgment just on my external stuff. Why don't you get inside of me and see how really dark and nasty it is? That's just the truth of the human condition. And we need help. We need forgiveness. And we have, we have all the facades and the masquerades down. We're, we're really good at playing the first century Pharisee. I know I am. Here you go, a little confession time. I don't think we're recording tonight. A little confession time. The further I get from the Arcadia area, the worse my driving becomes. <laughs> Unless my wife's in the car. Used to take my kids out for date night every week and... and Shelby, eventually, the oldest one, eventually she got into this thing where she would not take her eyes off the speedometer. And the minute I went over the speed limit, Dad, <laughs> she was my little governor. But we have all these masks and, ma and masquerades, the facades. We, we know how to virtue signal. We, we know how to play at religion. And it's all in an effort to ease our consciences about and be able to tell us that we're really good enough and that we don't need help, but what we really need is flat-out forgiveness. One of the challenges of this is that the weight of our need for forgiveness is not felt the way it needs to be or should be. And it's easy. One of the reasons it's easy to slough off that, that feeling of the need for forgiveness is because we live in a world with so many other sinners. Amen? Amen. And so we do what social scientists call the social comparison process. So in order to make ourselves feel righteous and good about ourselves, we just start looking around. Well, at least I'm not her. At least I'm not him. And, and if you happen to be somebody where you're looking around and you're having trouble finding somebody kind of below you on the sin ladder... There's always Hitler and Manson, and you can invoke those guys and feel golden. If you're the person in your RC that everybody else is looking at to make them feel good, you're going, Hitler, I'm good. That's, that's the social comparison process. And, 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 and what we really need 
is forgiveness. And here's why. Someday we're going to stand in the presence of a holy God and we're going to go, oh, wow, I didn't really get it. We're going to see holiness and perfection. And we have a couple of biblical examples of that. In, in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah enters the temple and, and there's the train of God filling the entire temple and the seraphim flying around. And he's, he's in the presence of God. What does he say? Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Uh, I'm a man of unclean lips is a, is a um, colloquialism for I am dead to rights as a sinner. Um, that story where um, the guys are out fishing They've been fishing all day, and they don't have anything, and then they're starting to come in. They're done. They're tired, and Jesus says, just throw the nets out on the other side of the boat, and they're all like, you, where, where's your fishing degree from? You didn't, you've never fished in your life. You're a carpenter. Do it anyway. Go ahead. Humor me. Throw it out there, and they throw it out there, and they have the biggest catch they've, they've ever had. What, what does Peter say? He says, you, you need to get away from me because I'm a sinful man. He saw holiness and he said, you, you, you got to go away from me because I can't handle being in your presence as a sinful man. So we need forgiveness. And then number three, grace. Grace is unmerited favor. And it's the riches of his grace. So where do, how do we understand that? Here's the recipe for the riches of grace. There's really two things I would mention uh, it's the cost or the sacrifice for God to do this for us. The cost of his son, the cost of God himself going to the cross. And, and, and think about this. Now think about this. This is Jesus submitting to the corruption of his day. He had every right to say, I'm not doing this. This is a kangaroo court. I'm not guilty. Right? Right? He submitted, not to righteous people, he submitted to the corruption of the day. That's sacrifice. And then the power. So you have the cost, the sacrifice, and then the power of God. And that power is over what? All corruption. You see the irony there? In order to overpower the corruption, Jesus had to submit to the corruption. That doesn't make any sense to our feeble minds. But that's exactly what happened. In order to overpower the sin, Jesus had to submit to sinful men. And then it's rich in that we can't pay any amount to have it. You can't pay any, you can't work it off, you can't pay it off. There's nothing you can do to have this grace because it's bestowed on us as a gift and it's priceless. It's priceless. It's priceless, yet it's free. That makes it rich. It's not cheap, but it is free. So you consider his blood and his grace. How often I have heard Christianity described by people as a movement of people. And, and I, I hear that and I just kind of go, ah. it just That just feeds into my opinion our propensity to take everything that God does and make it about us. This is a movement of God. This is a movement of the Holy Spirit. It's about something that's bigger than we are. And that's the joy that we have in it. 
For instance, take the beauty of our gifts as a body of Christ, the different ways that he's gifted us and given us talents, the different ways he's wired each one of us. It's all dependent upon his grace, his power, his enabling, his equipping. That we have this incredible body at Redemption Arcadia is a testament to God's grace. Our our, uh, lead pastor at, at Gateway, Luke Simmons, he says all the time that the scariest thing, he says the scariest thing about my ministry is how often I think I'm the one doing it and how much of it I can do under my own power. That's the scariest thing about my ministry. Because, number one, that's not sustainable if you're doing it under your own power. And number two, if, if you are the one doing it and it's under your own power, all it's going to breed is pride. He's right to have that awareness. He's absolutely correct to have that awareness. Um, as we close, I want to I come back to the point number one, redemption. Give you a little pop culture illustration of, of this. There's an author named Cormac McCarthy. I think we have a picture of him. Um, I've read a number of his uh, novels. Um, He wrote All the Pretty Horses. I think Matt Damon was in that movie. Um, He wrote The Road. It's an apocalyptic movie. Some of you maybe saw that. Uh, He wrote Blood Meridian. He also wrote probably his most famous novel, and I would argue his best novel, was No Country for Old Men. No Country for Old Men was set in 1980 West Texas. And the main character was a guy named Llewellyn Moss. Uh, Llewellyn Moss was kind of a simple guy. He was a welder. He was a blue-collar guy. He was a Vietnam vet. But he was also smart and strong and self-sufficient, kind of a loner. But he was also he was very good with firearms. And, and he always had a way of coming out on top in life. He just... He just had kind of lived that life. He was smart. He knew how to do things. He always had a way of coming out on top, which means he didn't feel like he needed anyone or anything. And he was married to a simple but very beautiful wife named Carla Jean. They lived in a trailer park in some little awful little West Texas town, you know. And, And, you know, they were white trash. And he's out hunting one day. And he, and he knows that he, he hit or nicked a deer, and he goes to look for the deer and sees that the deer had run off, and he's following the blood. And he follows it right into uh, the scene of a, a cartel drug deal that has gone bad. And, and pretty much everybody's dead or in the process of dying. They all shot each other. And, and what he stumbled upon was a truck full of cocaine which he wasn't very interested in, because eventually then he stumbles on the satchel that was going to pay for the cocaine, $2.4 million. And there's a guy who tried to get out of there with the satchel, and he's dead, and, and he's got the satchel next to him, and Llewellyn opens up the satchel and sees there's $2.4 million in there for a welder living in a trailer park in West Texas. And, and, and he ponders and considers he really has, like, he's wrestling with himself. Do I take the satchel or do I leave it alone? And, and, and ultimately, he decides to take the satchel because in that satchel, he believes that he has found life. How many of you 
you don't have to show your hands, but you'd think if you, if you stumbled across somehow 2.4 million tax-free, nobody knew about it, nobody was ever going to find out about it, how many of you would think, I found life? It's pretty tempting, right? This is the Genesis 3 story. This is, this is Eve listening to the adversary, offering her the fruit and saying, God doesn't really have your best interests at heart. Here's how you can be better. Here's how you can have real life. Here's how your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. And what happens? They experience death, spiritual death. And everything goes south. This is the Genesis 3 story. He took the satchel because he thought it would bring him life. It actually ended up bringing him death. Because taking the satchel meant that the character named Anton Chigurh, who was the hitman for the cartel, his enforcer, their enforcer, was going to be coming after him. Uh, one of the characters says of Anton Chigurh, played by uh, Javier Bardem in the movie, I don't know if you saw the movie, played by Javier Bardem, um, one of the characters said this of Anton Chigurh, they say that the eyes are the windows to the soul. I don't know what's behind his eyes, but I'm sure I don't want to know. Uh, Chigurh was violent and psychotic. He had no capacity for empathy or compassion or consideration. He took no prisoners. He was given his marching orders, and he would murder. That's it. You violated the cartel. You are now dead. You may not be dead yet, but you're as good as dead. Anton Chigurh is sin incarnate. He's the evil, the consequences, the punishment, and the death of sin all rolled up into one character. Well, Llewellyn didn't care. He didn't care that this guy was going to come after him because he'd always been able to take care of himself and he had always come out on top and he always knew what he was doing and nobody had ever beaten him. But finally, some force came along that was better and stronger than Llewellyn. And in the end, Llewellyn and Carla Jean, who didn't do anything, and Carla Jean's mother, who didn't do anything but was kind of annoying anyway, but the three of them are all murdered by Chigurh. So the question becomes, how much would Llewellyn have wanted redemption in that moment? The moment he realized suddenly he could not, he could not save himself. That what he was involved in was way bigger than he ever thought, and there was only one way to be redeemed. The only way that he could have possibly been redeemed is, is if some outside force, outside of him, some, some savior, some messiah had come. How much would he have said, all right, I'm ready for that now? And even if not for himself, how about for his wife, Carla Jean, at least for her? No. He needed a miraculous, supernatural outside intervention. And that's exactly what we need. That whole book, that whole movie, is a parable of the human condition and what we're doing with sin. And it's the Genesis 3 story. Now, I don't know if Cormac McCarthy wrote it that way, but I'm the reader and I get to interpret it any way I want. And that's the way I interpret it. And that's, we're all Llewellyn Moss. All of us. And that's why we need Jesus. That's why he's the king. And it's the riches of his grace that redeem us. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth. And uh, we do pray that uh, we would live joyfully.
in the midst of our redemption, our forgiveness, and the riches of your grace that you lavished upon us. Help us to see that and understand that. God, we pray that in Jesus' name. It's by your Holy Spirit we come to you. Amen.